You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, is Europe's far right really on the march or merely going round in circles? My guests Paige Reynolds, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Thomas Lewis will be discussing this and the day's other big stories, including the EU's plans to make the days permanently longer, the beginnings of a revival of outdoor swimming in European cities and... My letters are my most secret possessions. I write them when I have a crush so intense, I don't know what else to do. There are five total. Peter, the most popular guy in school. Kenny from camp. Lucas from homecoming. John Ambrose from Model UN. And Josh, but he's my sister's boyfriend. The alleged revival of the rom-com, yippee. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And joining us from our Toronto bureau, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all. Next week is the final week of campaigning in Sweden's general election. Polls suggest that the far-right Sweden Democrats are polling dishearteningly well. This week in Germany, Chemnitz has been cleaning up after the most unabashed far-right demonstrations in years. In the country where one might hope far-right demonstrations should be most abashed. The native nativist indeed insurrection which has taken root in several otherwise prosperous orderly and functional countries in recent years appears to be some way from burning itself out i mean page first of all the disturbances in uh, chemnitz and there has been uh, more protests uh, yesterday and today not that big crowds of a few hundred people did it get more attention than it really necessarily deserved because this was happening in germany i mean Yes, in a, in a way, because I think it's quite, um, when you have the word, when you have Germany and far right in the same headline, I think. It does make everyone a little twitchy. It makes everyone a little bit on edge. It's a little bit ominous. Um, but no, I, I think I think we really do have to give some attention um, to what's happened in Chemnitz. I mean, I think people who are familiar with that region um, of Eastern Germany and Saxony know that they've been sort of a, a neo-Nazi stronghold, as it were. There have been protests sort of year on year. However, this time it's been different because it's not just a few hundred neo-Nazi protesters. They were joined by about 8,000 citizens. And I think it's quite an important time to look at how the far right is diversifying. I think often in the media we sort of see them as these sort of disenfranchised white skinheads. But actually, um, that's not really the case uh, so much anymore. I mean, the AFD, who obviously aren't completely synonymous with these neo-Nazi far right groups, but they are, you know, veering a little bit in that direction. Um, they are sort of garnering support from from people like from like workers who usually would go for sort of more leftist politics and because they feel sort of under-supported. Um, and also, uh, we were actually talking about this on, on this morning's programme. Um, there was a report yesterday that had been published by the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, um, which has shown that actually women are also increasingly drawn to right-wing parties in Germany and also across Europe. So I think perhaps Chemnitz is important to look at actually you know, these far-right parties aren't on the fringe anymore. They're sort of veering into the mainstream, and that's something we should keep an I, eye I, on. I do still wonder if we do get sucked in uh, the media, that is, to paying too much attention. You mention a crowd of seven or 8,000 people. There will be teams playing in the third tier of the Bundesliga this weekend who will get a bigger turnout than that. 
You know, you know why also we're concentrating on Germany as well? Because to be fair with the country, they didn't have a strong far-right presence in the last, uh, let's say, 20 years compared to other European countries like Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, so many European countries with very strong far-right parties sometimes, even in coalition with the main center-right parties. And I think Germany, they didn't have that. But, you know, in the last, let's say, I don't know, two, three years, there's been a, a resurgence and that's worrying. I mean, it's the most populous country uh, in the European Union as well. And of course, they of course they have that that, that past uh, story as well but i think that's that, that's the interesting bit they they managed to not have far right for so long but now you know they they, they can contain that uh, fernando looking further afield than europe um is uh, jair bolsonaro the the uh, let's be charitable and call him a populist presidential candidate in brazil is he part of this worldwide phenomenon do you think or is he a peculiarly brazilian phenomenon i think he's part i mean it's so similar he's uh, his speech with all the far-right leaders you know, from the US and, and to Europe. One of the center-left candidates even called him uh, the Hitler of the tropics. I mean, in, in Brazil, it's still kind of acceptable to, to say names like this in a way. I think in Europe, probably you have to be a bit more careful and considerate when you say that. I wouldn't call him the Hitler of the tropics. But he, he, he was called the Trump of the tropics, so it seems like it's, it's escalating. That's, that's, it's escalating. That's and, and, it is. But you know what's fascinating about Bolsonaro and it's interesting about when you talk about who votes for the far right. You know, uh, there, there's been a poll there. The richer you are in Brazil, the more likely you are to vote for Bolsonaro. The more time you spend at school, you vote for Bolsonaro. And it's interesting because people think, oh, you know, of course, if you're disenfranchised, you would vote for the far right. That's not what's happening this in Brazil. Was, this, I think I'm right in saying, was true of the Trump vote as well, that his voters mm. on average tended to be slightly better off. Exactly. So we, we should stop thinking that, oh, you know, these people, they don't they didn't have a chance in life. No, actually, fairly wealthy people are voting for those countries. So sometimes it's just pure racism as well. Uh, Thomas, in our Toronto Bureau, the, the very question, given Canada's reputation for endemic seemliness, uh, sounds faintly absurd. But is is there any semblance of a far right in Canada? Is it a thing? Well, um, it is a thing, but not perhaps in the way that, for example, when you look south of the border to the US, that sort of notions of the far right are defined. But it is a concern that I think the government of Justin Trudeau is increasingly taking heed with. Earlier this year, he announced that the government would earmark 23 million Canadian dollars over the next two years to try and sort of get in early, really, and combat uh, a lot of these sort of scenes of debate that you would maybe characterize traditionally with the far right that are bubbling up in parts of Canada. I think when you look to somewhere like Quebec, for example, we've seen maybe the biggest anti-immigration sort of movements and demonstrations take place there rather than a sort of nation wide scale. Trudeau himself was was heckled about two weeks ago at a rally in Quebec um, where his comments and his reaction gained a lot of press because he called this lady out who was heckling him saying your racism has no place here. So there is certainly a tension growing and some recent research shows that there are maybe about 20-25 groups in Canada ranging in size and ranging in ideology that you could sort of class within the far right. Um, I think the notion of sort of the right of the political spectrum is something that's very much up for debate at the moment too. A very prominent uh, conservative politician, Maxime Bernier, he split from the Conservative Party last week to much fanfare to set up a new Conservative Party that he said would fight for, you know, more real conservative ideals. So I think it's maybe there's more nuance in notions of
of this right now. And we haven't seen, say, mass demonstrations like those in Charlottesville, for example, in the US here in Canada. But it is something that government officials are increasingly looking at, I think. Okay, well, let's move along now and look wistfully at something else that the United Kingdom might miss out on following Brexit in March. The EU Commission is proposing to end the twice-yearly changing of clocks and instead shift permanently to what is now known as summertime. Public consultations have received enthusiastic assent, if admittedly on extremely small turnouts. Nevertheless, only a lack-witted troglodyte would disagree with this obviously sensible measure, so I'm not sure why we're even discussing it. Um, Does anybody here, either at this table or on the other side of the Atlantic, Thomas, have any objection whatsoever to all of Europe going on permanent daylight savings time? I'm just going to let you know now that if you do have any objection to that, you're wrong and insane. No pressure. No disagreement whatsoever. I mean, I think it would be fantastic. I mean, I, you know, coming from Brazil here, I was so happy, you know, because I believe I arrived in the summer here in the UK and it gets dark at nine. Amazing. But then... It's lovely. But then December, January, 3 p.m. I know, it's, it's ins- dark. It's, it's, it's insane. It's sad and depressive. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I wouldn't recommend. And, and I think all of the, the reasons why we had daylight savings have essentially been found to be based on very thin evidence. Um, so I think it was originally introduced because it was meant to be energy saving. Um, this has turned out to essentially not really be the case. Um, also, there was a lot of sort of... Uh, uh, disagreement about um, you know accidents there being more accidents perhaps um, in the morning um, if it was darker but then obviously presumably that just sort of pushes forward to the evening um, and I think when you have more light in the evening it also encourages sort of more um, sort of activities or outdoors activity for both sort of adults and children and also I think it's a great thing for the um, for the nighttime economy I mean you sort of are more inclined to go out have some drinks go and sort of you know maybe go to a museum do something a little bit more with your evening if you've got some light so i think i think we're all in agreement here i mean i i, I would I, totally i have a bias i will acknowledge a bias here in that my own internal wirings are such that i i'm I maintain that at no point in the entire human experiment has any worthwhile idea been had or useful accomplishment been performed before lunchtime. I I really do not (laughs) understand what the thing is with mornings, why anybody ever tries to do anything in them, and if it's dark till about, you know, half past ten, I personally could not care less. Thomas? Uh, Amen to that, Andrew. (laughs) I was in Edinburgh for a wedding this summer and it got to about 11pm and just to sort of go back to what Paige was saying about the nighttime economy, it was 11pm and it felt like the sun was still in the sky and it felt absolutely wonderful to have this, you know, still living city with people not being particularly raucous, but, you know, just sort of enjoying being out and and mingling rather than tucked up with the curtains closed. I think there is something rather, rather nice about that to be able to sort of, you know, soak up every hour as you say, after lunchtime, when you're sort of slightly more ready for the game of the day ahead, I think. The the UK government did, in 2011, suggest experimenting with the idea of the UK joining Central European time, uh, which I guess in summer would move everything two hours ahead of GMT, or an hour ahead of where we already are. The idea just just makes me giddy, Um, which I think is also, again, a fantastic idea. I will concede that people who live further north uh, may have an argument against this. It would stay dark until quite late in the morning. Um, I just Could you have a situation whereby, say, for example, I will ask you, Paige, Scotland <laughs> is an hour behind England? Uh, no, 
I, I, I think that's a terrible idea. I think also it just it just contradicts like what you've learned or your entire life that if you're sort of on that same longitude, you have to be within the same time. Because, the, but I'm just saying there is a precedent for that in, in Australia where New South Wales and Victoria put their clocks forward in summer and Queensland refuses so to do. Now, I'm not really altogether sure why Queensland holds out and also I don't care, but, but <laughs> I, I, I have always liked the joke that we tell in New South Wales that Queenslanders think the extra hour of daylight fades their curtains. <laughs> but it causes all sorts of problems. This, because in Brazil as well, there's some states, they don't have the summertime. But then the problem is sometimes, sometimes the 9 p.m. soap, it's shown, you know, they have sometimes sexual and violent scenes. And the people from those states, they can't see the soap opera because of the time. It's earlier and children are still awake. So, so, so I wouldn't pe- recommend. Pe- pe- people in Brazil are upset because they can't see sex and violence on television. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's a TV scheduling question, isn't it, rather than daylight savings? <laughs> well, but I was going to say, Andrew, you were talking about the Australian picture there. There's a similar, you know, portrait here in Canada too, where big chunks of the country don't sign up to this at all. There are parts of Saskatchewan and parts of British Columbia and Quebec and even Ontario that just don't don't sign up to daylight savings. In Alberta, I think, a few years ago, there became this big sort of public row uh, that many Albertans wanted to sort of ditch it entirely. But then the Alberta government came out and said, well, look, if we do, we're going to sort of get hammered economic, um, economically, basically. Alberta, of course, is the big oil producing heartland of Canada. Canada that needs to be tapped into sort of the world economy. So that was how that was sort of put to rest there. But it is rather a sort of, um, you know, incomplete jigsaw of daylight savings where bits of Canada have chosen to opt in and others have decided not to do it at all. But just to follow that up, Thomas, why do some places want to opt out of it? Are they just mad people who live on farms and like getting up in the morning? (laughs) I think they probably are. And, you know, Canada is a fairly rural place, given how huge an area geographically it covers. Um, I I think a little like you with the sort of the, the fading of the curtains in Melbourne or wherever it is, Andrew. I think Queensland. there'd be lots Queensland, of... Queensland, Thomas. excuse me. Yes, my, my bad. Um, but I think, you know, there would be a lot of history and convention kind of plays into this, I guess, like Paige was alluding to, you know, your so, sort of sense of your place, I guess, kind of in the world kind of ties in a little bit to, to the time zone you sort of are in or were born in or that you're used to. And, you know, the upheaval, you know, that kind of comes with that, I guess, is kind of up lots of other issues too. I think when you look at countries like, say, North Korea or Venezuela that moved their clocks either forward half an hour or back half an hour, you know, there's a big political statement there also too to sort of, you know, mark their mark their kind of territory as distinct kind of entities. I think, you know, if you're in rural Ontario, for example, I'll be totally honest, I'm not totally sure why it would be such a bad thing to either be on daylight savings time or why, you know, to preserve not being on it kind of so vociferously. But that's certainly the picture in bits of the country here. I actually, when I was doing a bit of research today about British summertime in particular, um, it was first established by the Summertime Act in 1916 after a campaign by a builder named William Willett. And actually what he suggested, his original proposal, was to move the clocks forward by 80 minutes in incrementally in 20-minute sort of week gaps in April and then move them. <laughs> I mean, how much confusion would that cause? Imagine every week, particularly as we work on the radio and we're booking guests. It would be a nightmare. Sort of, it'd be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> but um, but he was the one that actually introduced British Summertime. Sadly, he actually um, he died before it, it, it came into. Uh, um, so so hang on, just about th- uh, this is genuinely news to me. This is amazing. <laughs> so so we we. We owe this good idea to a man who had an absolutely atrocious idea. Yeah. 
Well, That's he, it, that Andrew. Really weird. Did, did he even? Th- how was that supposed to work? I'm not sure. I think he just he just thought that it would ease everyone into it, so people wouldn't get so sort of job. Because actually, when people are looking at why the reasons for and against changing so that's not just staying on summertime but why we shouldn't have the change is that apparently people's biorhythms get really um messed up I by mean, that hour i, I mean see, I, I, I think I, that's a bit I don't, excessive I, I don't buy that it's like it's it's an hour it's you don't get jet lagged by that yeah i mean i i, I don't buy it either i'm just i'm just saying I, you know. I just, you know, I'm, I am one of those people who, when whichever change it is where you get an extra hour of the day, ends up spending most of it trying to remember how to reset the clock on the microwave. <laughs> uh, we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Paige Reynolds, Thomas Lewis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up next, it's bath time in Munich. How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the News, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Thomas Lewis, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And to Munich now, where City Burgers appear to have signed off on the funds necessary for a new riverside or indeed in-river swimming bath on the Isar between Cornelius and Bosch Bridges. The obvious inspirations for this are the many similar such facilities in Switzerland, especially the outdoor pools of Zurich. But is Munich about as far north as you would want one. Um, Fernando, you come, as do I, uh, from a a warm country where swimming is part of the sort of general summer recreation. Uh, Are European cities short on options and should they be making more use of their rivers? Well, again, depends on which city you're talking about because, for example, Zurich, I mean, they have amazing swimming the lakes. You know, I've been there and it is a pleasure because the water is clean, you know, everything is is, is so well organised. but for example, let's look at London. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, they do, you know, I think Paige will talk about this as well. They do have a lot of lidos and everything. But I think it could be more because London is a big city, about 8 million people. I don't think there is enough. We just had a heat wave. There are major queues outside those places. I mean, people, this is something that people want. It's something very important for people's quality of life. And, and, and I think London could do better. I'm, so I'm glad, very glad that Munich is doing that. I mean, there are sort of wildish swimming options in London, the ponds at Hampstead, for example. I'm not sure I'd recommend swimming in the Thames uh, to anybody. Paige, did you attempt the Lidos this summer? I did. I did attempt the Lidos, but as as Fernando was saying, it was about 30 degrees for about six weeks straight, and everyone suddenly realised that swimming was a great sort of uh, <laughs> counter to the uh, horrible, horrible heat wave we had. Um, and I, there are some bits of the Thames actually that are sort of cordoned off in this sort of like bathing fashion. So there's a little section next to the Serpentine um, where you have like changing rooms and a nice little pavilion where you can get drinks. But you, you are you are swimming in the Thames uh, at the end of the day, and this, unfortunately, this would be my concern. yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't quite think that London has um, the sort of lakes on offer um, in, in as they do in Switzerland or Germany. My suggestion, if you don't have it, build it. You know, so I think the government should build more public swimming pools. 
pools. I think, I think for example, Paris does that incredibly well. I think they have quite a lot of uh, public swimming pools where you can go there and, and everyone can use as long as you wear actually the right attire as well. Mm. And I think They're very strict of that. What, what is the right attire for a French public swimming pool? For a man's speedo, <laughs> no shorts. What? I mean, perhaps that's a bit too much, but it's true. Yeah, it is controversial. But uh, it's the French. Thomas, is, is, is outdoor urban swimming a thing in Canada for the two weeks of a year that you don't have to <laughs> hack a hole in the ice to <laughs> make it possible? Absolutely, it is actually. And Toronto and Montreal are sort of an embarrassment of riches, really, with sort of these open air sort of public pools, which fill up kind of, you know, everyone go, sort of goes sort of mad for them. And I think because the winter months are so long and sort of brutal here, that, you know, the two or three months of sort of sweltering summer, uh, really do sort of get people out and they're a really lovely sort of community sort of neighborhood thing each neighborhood pool has its sort of own sort of character own sort of group of people that come here but of course you know toronto you know boasts one of the greatest outdoor pools in the world which is lake ontario of course and that has a series of islands in it just off the coast of the city and there are beaches there that um were closed off last year because of some really bad flooding so they've been reopened this year and have been absolutely bursting at the seams and it really is the most wonderful sort of public space in my view that Toronto has and it's kind of interesting because you know Toronto is effectively sort of a coastal city given that you've got one of the great lakes on your doorstep but from sort of urban planning and things from back in the 60s you know the infrastructure that's built along the lake really sort of cut the city off so it doesn't feel like necessarily you could be somewhere in the city and not really know the lake is kind of right within a stone's throw I went to the opening of this quite interesting new public space called the Bentway last week, uh, which is hoping to sort of chip away at this barrier of old industrial land between the lake and the city itself. And it's a really beautiful, clever space built underneath the underpass of this huge expressway, which is such an imaginative way of trying to get people a bit sort of out of the city, down closer to the lake. And I think it's a really welcome, you know, way of trying to re-embrace one of these great natural assets that Toronto has. Well, finally tonight, uh, there is, it says here, a revival afoot of that genre of movies most usually watched at about hour nine of a long-haul flight. This is, of course, the romantic comedy known to people who struggle to get through six consecutive syllables as the rom-com, which is to say that there have been a few recent hits of this type. Juliet Naked, Crazy Rich Asians, Netflix has set it up, a coincidence which someone somewhere has turned into a column, which we're now discussing on the radio because this is how the media <laughs> works. Um, Fernando, this item was your idea. Oh, I, yes. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just uh, absolving myself of any responsibility for this whatsoever. Uh, what does make in your view, I'm suspecting this is something about which you have strong opinions, a good one to Well, a, a good script, first of all. Uh, likeable... so, so why don't any of them have one? Well, some of them do. Some of them do. I'm, I'm a big defender. Yes. It, and, and even if you, if you look at Netflix, the reason why they're doing so much, because secretly everyone loves it they have the algorithms they know people are watching that's why they're making they're releasing once one a week honestly i mean it's been such a trend so i i, I don't know something happened to hollywood producers that they forgot that people loved rom-coms and there was a decade without very good ones but now they're back i mean look at the success of crazy rich asians which might top the charts in the u.s box office for the third week in a row uh and there's so many other examples as well uh what's your favorite though what do you regard as the benchmarks of the genre i love I love Julia Roberts, so I've been, I think Pretty Woman and My Best Friend's Wedding, they are all-time classics, and to be honest, she deserves the Oscars for both of them, honestly. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure Heavy if we've got time to get into properly deconstructing the, <laughs> so, the subtext. Don't of forget pretty, too passionate. The subtext of Pretty Woman, but I'm pretty sure that none of what it had to say about life was good. But um, everybody likes to fall in love, no? Mm-hmm. Um, Paige. <laughs> yes. <laughs> are, are, are you yes to Pretty Woman rom-coms? I think I think what, what Fernanda was saying about how Netflix has like worked out the algorithm and realised that actually it's what people kind of like. I think I, I do I do get that, that a little a bit. Reci- I would never. That is a recipe for disaster. I would never say that you know certain rom-coms were favourite films of mine, but I don't know. Sometimes they're just quite comforting. There's a, like a familiar. You know what's going to happen. There's a familiarity. There's a like I know where this storyline is going, and you know that sort of like sort of brings me some sense of comfort. I think. We we were also talking about how um, there have been uh, results about what the most watched things on Netflix are. And in the UK, it's Friends, which is quite tragic in a sense. But Friends, um, it, Friends is basically an interminable rom-com in 25 well, minutes yeah, installments. E- exactly. And, it, and it's that sense of like familiarity. You know what's going to happen. You know the characters. Um, having said that, I haven't really enjoyed rom-coms recently because I feel like while, while the formula is good in a way because you know what's going to happen, they haven't been particularly diverse in terms of who the people are who are actually falling in love and also sort of how they've um, sort of presented women a lot of the time. But I think rom-coms are now catching up with that sort of cultural do, shift. Do you have films. a favourite? Bridget Jones. Oh, Absolutely, Bridget so. Jones. Great, yeah, great. A great. It's just, it's just, it's witty and she's got substance, you know? And I like what absolutely unwatchable. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm glad at least that so far nobody said love actually. Or, or Thomas, were, were you were you about to leap to its defence? <laughs> that was on the tip of my tongue, Andrew. You stole my thunder there. I think what Paige is saying about this sort of the formula and the tropes of these things. You know, it's interesting that you say, Paige, that you know the makers of these kind of formats are kind of catching up. I mean, are they though? I mean, it feels as though you know, you know, questions of love and romance and that kind of thing are sort of as open now, I guess, in certain quarters as they've been for quite some time. But it doesn't really feel to me, again, not by sort of rush to the cinema every time on opening night, every time a new rom-com comes out but you know that these sort of tropes are still quite rigid and that you know do they really might there be an opportunity there to sort of be a bit more clever about the fact that you know romance is a bit of a messy game you know it's there isn't some packaged formula for who you fall in love with or you know kind of what that love will ultimately look like and I think that's sort of my problem with you know people with these kind of formats is that you know obviously people sort of you say chime with them or have some sort of connection, but they are quite sort of removed, really, aren't they, from well, sort of what love looks like, surely? This is, this is what I wanted to follow up with you, Paige, read the Bridget Jones thing. <laughs> are you buying into these characters and sympathising with them, or is there a certain amount of thinking, God, I'm glad that's not me? Because I have watched at least one Bridget Jones film, probably at around hour nine on a long-haul flight, and I did just think <laughs> th- this, this is basically a film about two insufferable idiots fighting over the most annoying woman in London. <laughs> I just don't see it like that, Andrew. Clearly not. <laughs> Me neither. I think she's likeable in her own way. And, 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 and it's funny, good soundtrack as well, Jerry Hello, It's Rainy Man as well. So uh, I mean, it is a film at the end of the day as well. It's not, it's not real, li- it's not real not life, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's interesting what, what, what Paige said about, you know, different characters. It's not just kind of a, your usual, you know, white couple that we see every time. Even as a gay man, we have Love, Simon, which is 
kind of the first gay rom-com and I, I was so happy watching it, you know, because it is basically the same story but with gay characters. I thought it was quite groundbreaking because we have loads of gay films with tragic stories mm -hmm. and kind of people using drugs and cheating on each other, you know what I mean? Very kind of drama, they probably will get some Oscars but I missed a proper rom-com <laughs> and I hope there will be more Love, Simons. What, 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 Andrew, can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you have a favourite rom-com <laughs> and do you consider yourself a romantic? I, 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 I have been thinking about about what I would call my favourite rom-com, and I, I'd have to say Dust Boot. No, um, uh, <laughs> more, 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 it's a tearjerker. I, 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 I was about, I was about <laughs> to ask Fernando, would, would you admit uh, as a rom-com Heathers, which is genuinely one of my favourite films? I mean, admittedly, like everybody gets killed and the school blows up at the end, but and I don't think there's anyone actually lives happily ever after. But does that count? Yes. Okay, well, I liked Heather's. We're open-minded here. Yeah, Heather, Heather's is a good film. I, I will actually say Ten Things I Hate About You is a genuinely witty Shakespearean update, and I still think it was the best thing Heath Ledger ever did. And, do, and, and, and you, the scene with the brass band genuinely made me laugh out loud the first time I saw it. And do you really don't like Love Actually? It's, it's possibly the worst thing that's ever happened. Mm. I think it has been deconstructed as actually having some like really sort of awful... Um, uh, I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. And while I will say I think Love Actually is one of the worst films ever made, Lindy West's review of it is probably one of the best pieces of film criticism uh, ever That's written. The one. So, so, so something did, something good did come of it. Send it to me. Swings and roundabouts. I like it. Um, that I saw does. Moonstruck very recently for the first time ever, and you're going really to need to be quick. That Thomas. was a very, very nuanced, wonderful, really fun film that was really captured some of the sort of you know it was just a wonderful film and share obviously. Great. It's I'm Cher. There. We always have <laughs> <laughs> That does bring us to the end of today's show. Uh, Thomas Lewis, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us at Midori House. This was produced by Fernando, researched by Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. More on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House is back on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Miller. Have a great weekend. <laughs>